Welcome to season 10 of Be Heard Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning show that adds a taste of hip-hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I'll be discussing race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and I'll give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and I will read them throughout this show. Now, I am super excited to be here with you all today to discuss everything from the biggest stories of the week, from the passing of hip-hop icon DMX, to the Black lieutenant who was held at gunpoint and pepper sprayed by Virginia police during a traffic stop, stop to Candace Owens's latest shenanigans. And now later on the show, we'll unpack the litigation in the Derek Chauvin, Chauvin murder trial and question if George Floyd will receive justice with our featured guests, civil rights attorney and president of education reform, Shavar Jeffries. Now please support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee. If you go to buymeacoffee.com slash be her talk and give a small donation, it will help us to continue to support the issues and the causes that you care about. Now, without any further ado, we're starting off this show with a segment called Make It Make Sense. Because some things just don't make sense. Last week, a candid photo of Khloe Kardashian in a bikini was mistakenly shared on social media by one of her assistants. Her team then tried to scrub all traces of the unedited, unfiltered, and unapproved photo. Khloe then released a statement on social media saying, and I quote, in truth, the pressure, constant ridicule and judgment my entire life to be perfect and to meet other standards of how I should look has been too much to bear. She added, it's almost unbearable trying to live up to the impossible standards that the public have set for me. So here's the part that doesn't make sense. Chloe posted that statement on Instagram alongside videos flaunting her surgically enhanced body of perfect curves and extremely flat tummy. Plus, it's not just the public that has these impossible beauty standards. It's Chloe herself who is upholding unrealistic standards of beauty by constantly posting professionally curated and edited photos of herself that glorify toxic ideals for women. It's she and her sisters who have been playing a major role in creating that beauty standard. Not only that, but they've appropriated and commodified black women's bodies, thus purporting the toxicity of whiteness and capitalism. It's hard to empathize with someone who feels overwhelmed by the impossible standard that she herself has helped create and monetize. And what's incredibly frustrating is that when Chloe cries about not getting enough credit for working on her body through diet and exercise, she fails to note that it's her privilege that gives her access to things like a personal trainer and a personal chef. And she wouldn't dare even talk about the surgical procedures that she has done to shape her body. And as a result, little girls and grown women alike 
are looking up to her and, and thinking and saying, I wish I can have a body like that. But the fact of the matter is we can't afford it. So if you ask me, Chloe missed an opportunity to actually uplift other women by praising the unedited picture, which could have made so many people feel better about our bodies rather than constantly airbrushing and blurring out every imperfection. And on top of that, continuing to push these ideals are extremely toxic. It basically says that we can't exist without being perfect. So Chloe, my dear, if you're going to talk about the unrealistic beauty standards, then talk about the role you're playing in it. Because honestly, what you're saying doesn't make sense. Now, on that note, we are moving things along to the news roundup. This is the time that we talk about the biggest, most impactful stories of the week, the ones that made us laugh, cry, or go on a Twitter rampage. And to help me with this segment, I have two very special Be Heard Talk correspondents, starting with Kai Asiovio. I know I messed it up, but he is a Bronx-bred storyteller with a love for Black culture, hip-hop, food, and New York. How's it going, Kai? Pretty good, pretty good. How's it going? I'm good, I'm good. Also joining us is Evan Mastronardi. He is the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash and also a Bronx organizer for Rank the Vote NYC. How's it going, Evan? Thanks for having me, Selena. Glad Bronx is in the building, a virtual building. Um, always happy to be here on Be Heard. Always happy to have collab with Let's Not Be Trash. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So last week, DMX was reported to be hospitalized by multiple sources. For days, the world waited for updates. And then two days ago, we all received the news that he had sadly passed away at the age of 50. Painting a vivid picture of Earl DMX Simmons, fans and friends share anecdotes about his life, music, and impact. He was known for dark lyricism, vulnerability, and his commitment to faith. DMX is remembered as a man and an artist who rapped for the streets and the neighborhoods around it. He was even bigger than Jay-Z at one point. But his battles with addiction, abuse, and trauma were widely known and open conversations that center the Black community, poverty, and addiction. Now, poverty is not the source from where addiction is born, but rather that what cripples recovery by the lack of resources to help people who are struggling um, and how it leaves children vulnerable and communities unable to build. So DMX spoke about all of this through his music and interviews from his point of view. His first person narratives through, uh, through melody and melancholy gave his audience a chance to find a space to reflect and to relate. Kai, I, I wanna you know, kick off this conversation with you. What is DMX's legacy and how have you taken the news of his death? Um, well, his legacy, I believe is like pain and passion. Um, he, like, as you um, uh, said, like, he introduced us to a lot of, of um, his demons, so to speak, um, but showed us that there was always ways to get through it if you were strong and you just kept believing um, and, and believed in whether believed in yourself or believed in a higher power. 
And that's something that fans um, have always connected with. And um, we're able to kind of see past some of the those demons that did uh, um, come to surface um, because of those uh, that pain and passion that he that his legacy is about. Now, Kai, I remember you told me offline that you've been listening to a lot of his music that like basically a lot of us are doing now. What is it about his music that you connected to? Um, well, first, I'm from New York, so honestly, it was just him, his, his, his New York energy. Um, not everybody is that amped up in New York, just to get that clear, but he definitely uh, represented New York. So for me, that's that was my first connection. Just he felt authentic, um, and it, yeah, just the authenticity and of, of that New Yorkness. <laughs> Absolutely, Evan. How has DMX's music really impacted? the culture and music fans. Yeah, I mean, we said New York, you know, DMX was from Yonkers. We all know that's the sixth borough. In fact, you could just replace Staten Island, if, except for Wu-Tang. But uh, to me, Yonkers was always the sixth borough in some ways. Uh, X was pain. It was pain. It was passion. It was also evolution. You know, he went from, you know, Rough Riders Anthem all the way to, you know, Lord, give me a sign when you saw he was finding more of God, when you saw he was giving money to churches and Yonkers, he was letting uh, his spiritual nature guide him at a latter portion in life. Uh, I posted something on my own media about that famous picture of him with the orchids. You see this very muscular uh, rapper who has talked about addiction, who used profanity and shows his pain on his sleeve, but then showing how to grow orchids and to show even the strong guys got to heal. So I think DMX, from someone who writes about masculinity a lot, showed many facets of masculinity, of overcoming things, of being honest about it, of being honest about one's past, about being honest about healing, and of course, uh, like Kai said, just that raw New York energy. And uh, I just want to give one last point. My boy Stan Talui said, before X, before DMX was on tracks, you barely heard somebody bark on the track. And now after that, you could barely think of a track without somebody barking. So he really put that on hip hop. That was his signature bark. Evan, you mentioned male um, you know, vulnerability. And I do think that DMX really showcased and exposed Black male vulnerability, specifically on a larger scale. Why was it so important to see this Black man who, you know, had such a strong, raspy voice and very strong presence get on stage and then cry? Well, I think I think it was important to show, as I like to say, multidimensional multitudes, the notion that the masculine is not a binary. Right. The masculine is not just pain and anger and lust. The masculine can have all these spectrums to it. And it doesn't make DMX less masculine to show his pain, to show how he's healing, to heal later in life, to show it. You don't got to be, you know, even if you heal later in life, you know, there's a time for you. Um, I really feel like he showed the dimensions of masculinity to people. Um, and he's one of the few rappers that can name some others, but he, he really did it more at a at an earlier time, I think, that it, it allowed kind of men to have that part of them and to have that part of them validated. And when I show the, the picture of him with the orchids, what I said was like, let's give men this space to heal it as young as they are and as old as they are. Let's give men this space to even the tough, even tough guys got to heal. And we got to allow men that space.
Absolutely. So Terrell Williams left a comment via Facebook saying it was his style and truth behind the music for me. And Black Culture Cafe also left a comment via Facebook saying facets of humanity, not just masculinity. Kai, you know, DMX also spoke a lot about his troubles and, you know, his addiction with drugs. Um, do you think that, number one, he found enough support while he was alive? And number two, will this change the narrative about struggling with drug addiction and hip hop? Um, no, I don't think it would change the narrative. I do he, I do believe he received um, uh, enough, but I wasn't in his shoes, so I won't say enough, but I do believe he received support from the people, whether it's the Swiss Beats and the, the Raw and D's that were a part of Rough Riders, um, but then also the support from the fans. Um, his legacy was never tarnished. Um, a lot of times we hear artists, and rather when we lose artists, there's a lot of the time when we find the time to give them their flowers. And DMX was one of those um, artists who, between artists sampling him, between artists using his lyrics, between artists just saying he's one of their favorites um, continuously. Um, I think in, in those ways, he definitely got, like I said, I don't know if it was enough support, but I believe he definitely was given um, a, a, a support. So Natalie Turner left a comment via LinkedIn saying, as a black teenage woman, DMX was the first black male I saw be vulnerable in public without shame. Very powerful. It was very powerful. I, I saw him in concert in 2017. And just to see the multifaceted, multifaceted nature of DMX, you know, he's rapping about the streets, then he's praying, then he's crying. And you really saw a multidimensional black male, like you said, in our communities, we don't see that even in our own homes. How many times do we see our fathers, grandfathers, cousins and uncles and brothers just sit there and cry? Not enough. But DMX gave us space to do that. Um, Evan, what are your final words on DMX's legacy uh, quickly before we go to the next topic? You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. As someone who has read Bell Hooks, uh, The Will to Change, she has a chapter actually that said something to what you said. It was that the only time it was acceptable for men in her family, and she's a black woman, to cry was in the church. And when that happened, that spirituality happened in that realm, it was okay to see more emotion for men. And I think DMX kind of brought that beyond the church. I think he, he brought his spirituality to everyone. He said, you know, you, can, you could have it outside too. You could have it with your spirituality outside. You could have it with your mas masculinity outside. You can have that vulnerability in many places. So I think he brought it to places that uh, it not necessarily was validated before, and he did it as a great lyricist and musician. Kai, what are your final thoughts on DMX and his legacy? Um, honestly, he was a titan. Um, and he was a titan as an artist. As some of the records that he did, like one of the first artists for his first five albums to go um, number one. Um, like, So he, he was a titan um, from uh, uh, the industry standpoint, but then in the lives of his fans, um, from everything we just said today, his legacy will last forever. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful that an artist like that was able to um, transcend and the flowers were not only given to him while he was here, but beyond that. Absolutely. We will continue to honor DMX through his legacy of music and our prayers and thoughts go out to his family and everyone attached to him. Now, in other news, a black lieutenant was held at gunpoint 
and pepper sprayed. So police in Windsor, Virginia, pulled their guns on a black man identified as Second Lieutenant Cargan Nazario, a member of the U.S. Army Medical Corps. Police pepper sprayed this man, kneed him in the back, arrested him, and threatened to press charges if he reported their conduct. He has since sued the officers and accused them of racial profiling because, duh, let, let's play the clip of this. Get out the car. You received an order. Obey it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm honestly afraid to get out. Can I? Yeah, you, you should be. Going? Get out. What's get going out. on? What get did out I the do? car. Get out now. I have not committed any crimes. You're being stopped by traffic violation. You're not cooperating at this point right now. You're under arrest for a traffic. So you're being detained, okay? You're being detained for, for a traffic justice. traffic violation. I do not have to get out the vehicle. You haven't even told really? me why I'm being stopped. Really? Get your get hands off. Get out of the car now. Get out of the car. Get your hands off me, get please. Get your hands off me. You know what? Get your hands off me. Get your hands off me. Back up there. I didn't do anything. Jeez. Even watching it now, it's still so startling. Forgive me. I should have given a, tr a trigger warning because I, I just can't even bear to watch something like this. You know, this brings us to our larger conversation, Kai. Uh, where is black safety? Where, why can't we feel safe in our communities? I mean, that man defends our, our country and he defends like the, 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 the pillars that people are have, like the, that, that people are willing to riot for and stuff. And he was treated as if he was a criminal without even really being explained what was going on. So to answer your question, honestly, I don't know if, if a man in service can't be treated um, properly. I, I don't know how to answer your question. I mean, and I we're right there with you, Kai, because if they can't even respect someone who's dedicating their life to fight for all of our freedoms, then they can't respect any of us. And it's a long it's a narrative that we've seen a long time, generation in and generation out. Um, Evan, with immunity being stripped from police officers in a few states, do you think it will have a ripple effect? I hope so. But, you know. In a lot of these small towns and, and and even just more conservative town governments, they're not going to follow suit. It's going to really take a federal mandate. And even when there's a federal mandate, you know that there's going to be so much resistance from these towns that think that it's handcuffing their officers to not let them pepper spray uh, peaceful members of our military. And, you know, you mentioned that fact, but it's like, I think it's important. But at the same time, you know, regardless if he's a member of the military, regardless if he was, you know, selling selling drugs, there was no or, or even committing like a, a petty type of misdemeanor. Like there's no reason for that. Like the man is peaceful. He is unarmed. He, he naturally would be upset the way the cop is acting, but he has his hands up and the cop is just waiting to pepper spray him. I mean, you, you could see with how much and someone wrote. And I know you're going to talk about this later with the Chauvin trial going on as this happened, as this is happening in, in our media, in our in our consciousness. The Chauvin trial is happening. Look at the ease and the comfort with which the cop just is ready, saying, you know what, you know what? And earlier in that video, he says, you know what? You should be scared. It's like it's all it's all a game to them. They think they'll always be protected. So I, I honestly don't have much faith until this is done at a federal level. But we need to work at local levels until then. 
So Rachel Johnson left a comment via Facebook saying this officer got upset just because he knew his rights to not get out of the car said you're right. So as we saw, the lieutenant said, I don't have to get out of my car for a traffic violation. And it seemed like that really bruised his big white ego to the point where he was about to kill this man. Like, did you see how close he had? He wanted to shoot him at gunpoint. Like, honestly, I'm at the point of so much outrage. Um, you know, to Evan's point, we are currently uh, watching a trial for another black man who was murdered. And with the history of lynching in this country and black oppression, it just really doesn't make sense. Kai, what do you think the answer to this is? I mean, off rip, uh, that uh, supervising officer needs to be acquired. Um, his partner also, uh, I, I mean, I slightly even feel bad for the partner because just watching his face, watching the entire video, and even the partner comments kind of slightly confused as to like, whoa, like even his face kind of reads. And I believe um, uh, it's being reported that uh, in the police can, uh, someone has overheard, one of the officers uh, is overheard saying something like, uh, this is messed up, like this is effed up. Um, so in, in, in that immediate moment, the, 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 another officer might have also expressed that, yo, this is, this is, this is wrong. So yes, I believe that officer needs um, to be fired immediately, both of them, um, uh, actually. Uh, and beyond that, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll continue to follow this story and the lawsuit that that lieutenant has filed against the cops. And obviously, at the least, they need to be terminated. But moving things along, so New York became the 15th state to allow recreational use of marijuana, while Virginia moved to legalize possession of small amounts by July. We know that there are a disproportionate amount of men and women of color behind bars on probation parole, and so forth because of non-violent drug possession charges. Evan, will they be, will these charges be removed? And you, do you think people will be granted a fresh start? I hope so. I hope it's not just talk. I mean, if you think about the amount of people who have been incarcerated, and I just, I don't mean just the ones who are currently, I mean the ones who were in the past and should have the records expunged. This is, that in just New York alone, that's going to change the dynamic for for prisons, for the prison industrial complex, for, you know, the way we incarcerate for for people's eligibility to be employed and, and perhaps even um, past discrimination. Because if you were denied a job because of something that's now perfectly legal, I wonder how they're going to litigate that one. So, I mean, I hope so. I am honestly a little concerned that this happened so fast that the law enforcement, as we just saw, which is woefully um, inept at t many times and many times racist, I'm still concerned how they're going to litigate that on the streets because it's like they're used to just, you know, you know, rounding up people for a dime. And I don't know that shit. I used to see them post on their Instagram, just some weed on a table, like it was an accomplishment. I don't know how that same police force is going to ship that quickly to this. I hope they do, but I'm a little concerned about that part. That's a good point, Evan. Kai, what are your thoughts on New York legalizing marijuana? Do you think it will shift police and community relations? And what do you think, what changes do you think will come about in our communities? Um, in terms of the shift, honestly, I don't know, because the head of the, the um, New York's police, he is not against, I mean, he's against the bill. Like, he's not for uh, legalizing um 
a marijuana in New York. So I, I don't, I, it's going to be difficult if it's legal in the state, but the guy who's uh, the head of the police is not into um, the legalization. Um, and, but I, I'm, I am thankful that it seems like they are trying to maybe not right some previous wrongs, but that they are looking to at least focus some of the benefits of legalizing um, weed in, in, in New York, um, uh, uh, since, uh, get targeted in and making sure that our, uh, I think about 40% um, of, of tax revenue will go directly to communities that are, um, were historic, historically um, uh, affected by um, uh, uh, marijuana being illegal. So I guess I don't know to answer your question in terms of how will it change the shift between police and um, uh, uh, neighborhood relations because like the police might not be as with the legalization as the people are, but I do like that the, the bill itself is trying to at least get um, funds and, and, and even beyond that, even uh, licenses, um, uh, a certain amount of, of um, uh, licenses will be allotted just for people who were historically um, uh, impacted by the um, uh, illegal uh, uh, marijuana uh, situation. So uh, to answer your question, I'm not sure, but I am happy that there are portions of this um, bill that will at least seemingly help us in, in, in the future. So Stacy R. Owens left a comment via LinkedIn saying, you can't legislate hearts and minds, accountability for rogue and criminal police. Um, that kind of, I think that has to go with the previous conversation we have, but that definitely echoes into this conversation about how police will now handle communities of color, the communities that they've surveilled for generations because of small amounts of marijuana. Will they just wake up and, you know, everything be fine? More than likely not. So before we end the news roundup, I do want to talk about one more story. It's a little more lighthearted and a little more fun when it comes to this vaccine war. So the vaccine debate has reached Black Twitter again. And as always, we are fully entertained with lighthearted and sometimes satirical takes. Twitter users are now changing their names with plays on the popular vaccination options from Pfizer to Moderna to Johnson and Johnson. And I know that we even had some TikTokers who've been also using or going out or using their platforms to talk about which gang that they're in or which set that they're claiming. Um, Evan, have you gotten the vaccine? And if so, which set are you claiming? I'm about that J and J squad. Squad. J squared, Johnson Johnson. Yeah, I got it. I got it four days ago. Just was a little, little drowsy, bit of a headache, but I'm okay. No problems there. Hi, what are your thoughts on the vaccination? And do you think now that people are taking it to social media, more folks in the black community might feel less resistant to get vaccinated? Yes, absolutely. Like once you start seeing your friends openly tweet and and post on social that they're comfortable letting the world know that they're getting this vaccine that only a month, only like seven months ago, a year ago, people were like bringing up historical reasons why we shouldn't even entertain a vaccine. And like I said, now people are, are, are confidently and comfortably sharing that uh, they're gonna be a part of whichever gang that they're joining. So yes, I do think um, uh, it's people taking it to Twitter, especially the black Twitter, very influential um, segment of the culture. Um, I definitely do think it will have an impact on um, just people being more confident and because I feel like a lot more people were into getting the vaccine, but just having that conversation in front of people might not be um, as welcoming. So I, I do think that helps. Um, and then for the ones that maybe not 
didn't want to take it at all. Now they're hearing, or not only hearing, but if you see somebody uh, uh, today tweet about being um, a part of each other gang, and then five months later they're chilling, um, a year later they're chilling. Uh, right. That kind of stuff. I mean, it's still early, but at a certain point, it's kind of like, okay, these vaccines aren't as terrifying as they have been in the past kind of thing. Right. So we actually have some footage of people who are more than excited to share that they've been vaccinated. Let's get to that clip. So what vaccine did you get? I got the Moderna vaccine. <laughs> Yo, man, what the heck? I can't believe I'm in the same room with a Moderna mutt. Oh, that's how it's yeah, going to be. Gonna be. Okay. What you going to do well, about I didn't it? remember inviting a filthy Pfizer here. Last time I checked, we got 95%. You got 94. Where that 1% oh, man, go, bro? It's thick like Pfizer here. Shout out to Gen Z for just taking the vaccines and making it their own and running with it and making so many more of us comfortable with getting vaccinated. Shout out to them. And I also want to give a shout out to Kai and Evan for joining me for the news roundup. Always appreciate your commentary. Thank you again, guys. Thank you. So we're going to keep things moving before we get to our very special featured guest and we unpack the Devic Chauvin trial. I need to question a few things that had me say, really? First of all, Candace Owens says it's time to pull our kids out of school because they are being taught how to hate white people. Do we have a clip to play? Okay. We may not have that clip, but let me attest to you, it is definitely worth a yawn and eye rolling. First of all, Candace Owens will say just about anything for buzz in white adulation, which can absolutely be used to dissect and allure the white gaze. But can't we just defund Candace Owens? Oh, that's why we aren't the ones who keep her booked, just busy. Really? And speaking of Candace Owens, another thing that had me question and just say really is that it's been reported that fathers must go half on the pregnancy bills in the state of Utah. It reminds me of something 50 Cent once said, but with a little twist. Maybe we should have a baby by me, baby, and pay your fair share. Utah is one of the first states to require biological fathers to go half on pregnancy bills. So y'all not just going half on a baby, y'all going half on the bills. Really? And last but not least, New York City singles are ready for slutty summer of casual sex as COVID-19 vaccinations rise. The streets, the streets are calling some of our names. So Megan Thee Stallion declared a hot girl summer, but afterwards said, but my man could come pick me up. But it's the singles in New York City that are saying that the boot up, the cuffed up, and the those who are in love can stay inside. Really? Really? Okay, guys. So after that, now it is time to actually kick off our main segment, George Floyd the Derek Chauvin trial, and ask the question, will justice be served? 
So we know that the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin moved through its second week of testimony, giving the jury a more complete picture of what happened on May 25th, 2020, the day that George Floyd was killed. Um, as we know, he was struggling on the ground. Well, maybe in the beginning, he wasn't actually struggling on the ground. He was completely face down on the ground in handcuffs when Derek Chauvin kept his knee on his neck for more than nine minutes. Now, Floyd appeared to be unconscious for four of those minutes, but still Derek Chauvin would not let up. So far, jurors have heard a number of police officers testifying against Derek Chauvin. We also heard an emergency room physician who made the pronouncement that followed by other medical uh, professionals who took the stand that says, basically, on based on their expertise, he died as a matter of lack of oxygen. We also seen a parade of police officers breaking the blue wall of science, excuse me, of silence and testifying that Derek Chauvin was not acting properly or appropriately during this arrest. So without further ado, I want to invite to the conversation Shavar Jeffries, who is a civil rights attorney and president of Education Reform Now. Thank you so much, Shavar, for joining this conversation with us today. Happy to be here with you. So we just played some clips from the trial. Uh, a number of us are watching, but I think it hits really differently for, you know, us in our community. And, you know, before you're a civil rights attorney and a political leader, you're a black man. So I want to actually start there. How does it feel as a black man watching the Derek Chauvin trial and reliving the trauma of George Floyd's murder? It's very difficult. Uh, it's it's re-traumatizing. Uh, to see how uh, George Floyd's life had no, did not matter, had no significance, uh, not only to Chauvin, but to the officers that were uh, with Chauvin, uh, how uh, his life could be taken away for over nine minutes, uh, how he pleaded for his life. He pleaded for his mother. He was calling out to his mother. Uh, he was not treated as, as a human being should be treated. He wasn't treated as the ways in which we'd expect any human being to treat another human being. And we know that we as black people, we get treated this way on a consistent basis. Um, obviously, uh, enslavement was a brutalization of the black body. Uh, Jim Crow segregation uh, and the terrorism and the lynchings that uh, were used in forced Jim Crow segregation throughout the Southeast, that was a brutalization of the black body. We've seen post Jim Crow, uh, the ways in which some officers uh, have used the authority that uh, have gone beyond the authority that they have in the law, but have used the cover of that authority to brutalize black bodies. We've seen this happen repeatedly. And so to see what George Floyd was subjected to was just another reminder, another traumatic reminder of the ways in which our, our bodies, our lives can be taken arbitrarily, you know, without provocation, without reason. This man, the whole, this stop involved a counterfeit $20 bill. This man was unarmed. This man was handcuffed. This man was prone lying on the ground. He posed no threat to anyone. And of course, even the fact that he was passing a counterfeit bill really doesn't bring with it any significant threat. Uh, but for him to be murdered in this way, uh, in broad daylight, uh, just speaks to the ways in which black lives uh, too often just continue not to matter in this country. Absolutely, Shavar. So, you know, um, this is the second week 
of testimony. I wanted to get your thoughts as an attorney, what you thought about the second week of testimony in comparison to the first, because I read that there was a lot of criticism the first week. And some people were saying that the arguments weren't substantive. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, my take is, I mean, there's really two major issues that we've seen in the trial so far that I think is important for people to keep track of. One is what we'll call justification in the law, and the other is causation. So under justification, that gets into whether or not the force that Chauvin brought to bear on George Floyd is justified under the law. So police uh, do have the ability to use violence in certain situations. We saw in the clip where the officer was asked about objective reasonableness. Uh, so an officer can use force that's objectively reasonable based upon uh, the force that he or she feels they need to subdue. Uh, on that issue, uh, there's really no credible argument because George Floyd didn't present any threat to anyone. He was handcuffed. He was lying prone. Of course, we'll hear in the trial all sorts of arguments about uh, maybe he was in some sort of uh, 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 drug high where he could have still brought some violence. Sometime when we heard some conversation during the trial about even when people are unconscious, they can wake back up and bring violence. So because that dealt with the fact that Chauvin continued to keep his knee on Mr. Floyd even after uh, he was unconscious. Uh, so the justification issues all get into whether or not lawful force was brought to bear uh, on Floyd. Then the second issue is causation. And so despite the fact that George Floyd was alive, he had this encounter with Chauvin, he was choked and died, uh, there's actually, a, there, the defense is trying to make the point that it wasn't Mr. Chauvin's uh, assault on Floyd that caused him to die. It was that he had drugs in the system. It was that his heart was weakened. Uh, it was that there were issues about uh, Mr. Floyd, which is consistent with the kind of victim blaming that we've seen historically in these type of trials. So it's important for people to keep track of both the justification part of the trial as well as the causation. Uh, I do think the second week uh, we really saw um, uh, frankly, even more compelling testimony from a legal standpoint. The first week involved a lot of emotional testimony, which is very important. But under the law, um, there's a there's uh, a set of technical elements that have to be demonstrated. And when you heard from police officers who talked about how that that the actions that Chauvin took had no basis in the policy of the Minneapolis Police Department, had no basis in the ethics and values. Uh, the most senior homicide detective in the Minneapolis Police Department uh, testified to that. And even more powerfully, the police chief uh, of the department uh, spoke powerfully about that. So I think that testimony was very compelling. Uh, and it was significant because it's rare in these type of cases where you see other officers who will stand up uh, and speak against the unlawful conduct of other officers. Uh, we'll see what that means when it's time for the jury verdict. But that was significant. So Natalie Turner left a comment via LinkedIn. She says, this was a crime against humanity. Michael R. Hasler also left a comment via LinkedIn. He says the witness and experts did a fantastic job this week. Um, you know, Shavar, to your point, like we, we hear the testimonies on both sides. Um, but and I think we, we, we touched on it. The defense is saying that George Floyd died as a result of health conditions and um overdosing on fentanyl or you know the whatever drugs that were found in his system is that a credible argument and if so like do you think that that raises reasonable doubt i do not i absolutely do not think it's credible 
Um, the testimony it, uh, spoke to that this week. Of course, the defense hasn't put on its case yet. That that will, will come. Uh, it, to me, any reasonable person, um, any person who has basic cognition, I would argue any person who can see, can see that George Floyd was alive. Uh, he then had an encounter with Derek Chauvin where for over nine minutes, uh, he uh, pressed his knee forcefully on George Floyd's neck. We heard significant medical testimony, which just confirmed what uh, any person with eyes would be able to see that George Floyd died of asphyxiation, um, which is just basically that you can't get oxygen to your brain. Uh, and that was a consequence of the fact that, uh, that, that, that George Floyd effectively was being strangled and was effectively being strangled uh, to death. So to me, there's no reasonable person uh, who, could, who, could, who could find otherwise. However, uh, we know about the history of our country uh, when it comes to uh, police misconduct and police brutalization of black bodies. Uh, all it takes is one juror who can say, hey, there was my, the, the, I feel that the waters were muddied enough. Maybe there was enough drugs in the system. Maybe, his, maybe he did have um, a weakened heart condition. And if you overlay that with the ways in which uh, black bodies have been racialized, where some are uh, view black bodies as predisposed to being predatory or predisposed to being violent. When you put all that together, um, uh, uh, I would not be surprised, sadly, uh, if if Derek Chauvin goes free. Um, you know, I, I I would hope at minimum uh, he gets manslaughter. I mean, this was murder, to be clear. Uh, so Chauvin should be convicted of the most serious crime that he was charged with, which is second degree murder, which carries with it potentially a sense of up to 40 years. I would not be shocked, however, uh, to see a manslaughter conviction, uh, which is basically a, 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 a killing that happens when there's a, a reckless or negligent um, mindset versus an intentional killing. Um, and, and I also sadly wouldn't be surprised if he walks free, given the history of how uh, juries have reached verdicts in, in case involving police uh, uh, killings of, of black people. Shavar, if he is convicted of manslaughter, how many years do you think he would be sentenced? So if, he, if he's convicted of manslaughter, the maximum sentence there uh, would be 10 years. Um, I would hope he would get 10 years. Um, he deserves that. At minimum, he was he was grossly negligent. Right. So even if somehow in his mind he thought that he was simply subduing George Floyd as a part of executing an arrest and they did and that there wasn't a reasonable likelihood that he would die as a consequence of the voice at minimum as of the force at minimum, that was grossly negligent. And it was so grossly negligent that, that in my mind, he should get the full 10 year sentence there uh, to be clear. This was murder. And so whether it's the second or third degree murder uh, offenses that. Uh, uh, that Chauvin has been charged with. To me, this country should send a very strong signal, which would be different from the signal we had in the past, uh, that the arbitrary murder of black lives by police officers, that folks can be held accountable. And that's what the police chief spoke to. Uh, the police chief spoke to the, spoke to the fact that good officers deserve some discretion when they're doing the right thing, but when you do the wrong thing, you gotta be held accountable. And clearly uh, what Derek, Derek Chauvin did here uh, was unjustifiable, was shameful. Uh, and I do agree with what was said in the comments. It was an act against humanity. Um, so JP left a comment via YouTube. JP says, we must be honest with this case. Don't act as if this case is an easy one. We've seen that with Trayvon and all the other cases that had the same outcome. 
Let's not be surprised if it doesn't go our way. Honestly, JP, my expectations are so low. Every, you know, 30 years ago, we watched Rodney King be beaten and all those officers were acquitted. We watched George Zimmerman be acquitted. And, you know, Breonna Taylor, no one was held accountable for her death directly. So, yeah, I mean, time and time again, and I think that we're all really frustrated. Um, Avant Drummer actually is asking a question via Facebook. Avant says, has the prosecution yet proved intent? Have they established intent, Shavar? Well, now, now remember, so, so, uh, Chauvin had, there's three charges in the, in, uh, before the, the, the jury. One is third degree, um, uh, second degree murder, third degree murder and manslaughter. First degree murder actually requires an intent to kill. The, the, the second degree murder offense, which is the most serious charge uh, uh, at issue here, uh, requires the killing of someone with in the in the process of committing a felony. Here would be felonious assault. So even if Sean didn't have a specific intent to kill, but he did have the intent to commit this felony, which was assault, he could still be convicted of the second degree murder. And that's what I believe should happen here. I absolutely agree. I do think this is an easy case. Um, and at the same time, I still don't expect Sherman to get convicted of second degree murder just because of the history of, of racism uh, in our criminal punishment system as it relates to police killings of black bodies. But I say this case so issue, Floyd was handcuffed. He was handcuffed, right? I believe many other cases were easy as well. I believe the Trayvon Martin case was easy. I believe uh, 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 Eric Garner, and we could go down the list of a whole variety of cases I felt were relatively easy. This is even easier because George Floyd was on the handcuffs. He was on the ground prone in handcuffs and he was unarmed. So what 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 reasonable threat could he present to anyone? He couldn't use his hands. So so if we can't get a conviction here. Uh, then I don't know when we can ever get a conviction uh, of murder. At the same time, though, I'm not expecting one. And, and sadly, I've become some so cynical just given my experience and always a black man. But as a person who is very well versed in the history of this country when it comes to the brutalization of bad bodies, of black bodies, that sadly we really shouldn't expect justice. But if you're asking me objectively, is this an easy case and what should happen objectively, Chauvin should be convicted of second degree murder. Um, he should serve a significant sentence somewhere between 20 to 40 years. Um, to me, it's something in that ballpark would be justice, um, but sadly, I don't expect it. So JP left another comment via YouTube. He says, I agree with manslaughter. It's unfortunate, though. Let's not riot. Let's push forward and focus on improving our communities and moving up. So I take a little, mm, I would push back a little bit there because time and time again, when we don't get those convictions, as you were talking about, Shavar, we hit the streets, right? You know, whether it was LA in the 90s or, you know, here in New York after Eric Gardner, we're hitting the streets. Sometimes those protests become a little bit rowdier and things do turn into a riot. But, you know, it was Dr. King that says the riot is the result of the unheard. What is your take on the moving forward process? Because it, it feels like this country won't even give us the dignity to have a case to talk about these issues unless we're burning stuff down. <clears throat> the, the, we have, moving forward, I think we have to do a series of things. 
one is we have to we have to continue to take over prosecutors' offices. We got to continue to get more people in our police departments who have, uh, frankly, an anti-racism mindset. Uh, we have entirely too many officers uh, who who um, at best have a mindset steeped in unconscious racism, unconscious bias, and we have seen some history that some white supremacists have targeted certain police departments uh, to infiltrate. I think the bigger issue is the kind of unconscious bias. Uh, and so that's why you have to have to have active anti-racism training, but also you want to, from the beginning, recruit different officers into with a different sort of mindset. Uh, we have to continue to elect people in the prosecut prosecutorial offices uh, in order to make sure that folks are being held accountable and that these charges are being brought, which is what we do have here. So that that is some kind of progress that at least Chauvin has been tried and he's been charged. He's been charged uh, with murder. Uh, when you get that jury notice, you got to show up for jury duty. Uh, we tend we oftentimes don't have. Uh, racial equity in too many of our juries. We got to have our people showing up in juries so that you can be, you can be in a position of making decisions. And we have to agitate and and, and make noise. Uh, if Chauvin is acquitted, uh, that is a gross miscarriage of justice, and our voice has to be heard on that. Uh, we need to we need to we marching, rallying, uh, letting elected officials know uh, how how uh, problematic this is. We need to push for federal. Uh, to the extent there's federal uh, remedies, which there could be, um, if there's some federal criminal remedies uh, uh, that we can we can avoid double jeopardy issues, those should be explored as well. Uh, but if he's found acquitted, uh, it's going to be hard for anybody in a straight face to say to black folk that they should expect any reasonable form of justice in this country, uh, and that uh, that would just be another uh, you know, uh, instance, uh, you know, that causes black people to, re to to see that they're really not a full part of this country. Uh, so what we can do is try to work within the system. Uh, the system has not shown itself, um, you know, to systematically serve our interests well. Uh, we just have to continue to keep chipping away at it. Um, but I would not be surprised um, if there are, um, you know, very uh, you know, boisterous, uh, potentially riots in the, in the aftermath of this, because if Charlotte is acquitted under these circumstances, um, it's it's beyond a slap in the face to the black community and not only just the black community, any human being of goodwill who just believes human beings ought to be treated with decency and respect. Agreed, Shavar. So Michael R. Haisler says, let's go to Michael's comment folks. First, Michael says elections and voting, no violence. That's what his uh, uh, take on, you know, how do we move forward is. That's his answer. Natalie Turner left a comment via LinkedIn, she says we can pay the system's taxes, but the system's laws don't protect us. Um, great take there from sister Natalie. Now we have Michelle Fields Esquire, who says via LinkedIn, moving forward means removing qualified immunity for police officers and prosecutors. In addition, revamping all police departments, which is basically what Shavar said a few minutes ago. Uh, you know, moving forward in the trial, Shavar, what can we expect uh, come Monday, come tomorrow, number one? And number two, what do you think, how, how does this trial changing us as a country? Well, you know, I think, you know, we're going to get the defense's case um, in the weeks ahead, and they're absolutely going to go aggressively on causation. Uh, so we're going to hear a lot of uh, 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 testimony um, about uh, allegations of drug use by George Floyd. We're, I'm sure there's going to be expert testimony that talks about the effects drug use can have on the heart. Um, we're going to, I'm sure, hear testimony about 
other ways in which that they can try to uh, divert attention from Chauvin's actions to George Floyd and to his choices. I'm sure we'll hear testimony about how he he wasn't as compliant as quickly as the as the the officers would have wanted him to be. Um, I'm sure we'll also hear some testimony that and we've seen some some of this already uh, that the crowd that the crowd was making noise. The crowd were calling some of the officers' names, and that could have caused these officers to be distracted. Um, and not to fully appreciate fully what was happening with Mr. Floyd. Uh, to me, none of these issues really are credible, but we should we should anticipate uh, a lot of a lot of this sort of conversation. I think as a country, uh, what was powerful was in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, we saw a multiracial, uh, diverse group of Americans, not just Americans, people throughout the world stand up to say we have to be better. And so, so if anything gives me hope in the midst of this. Um, even if Chauvin is acquitted, uh, which again, I would not be surprised if that were to happen, although objectively it should not, is a wide cross-section of Americans have, have begun to look in the mirror in a different type of way as it relates to the realities of racism and how it continues uh, to play a role in the, in the ways in which institutional authority and power is meted out in this country, not only in policing and criminal punishment, but in really every domain of our society, from access to capital, housing, our school system, healthcare. We see this in the context of COVID-19, where communities of color um, are disproportionately affected uh, uh, by COVID. And so I think that has been very positive. And we've seen a large number of institutions invest capital um, in terms of black businesses and black and brown communities. Uh, we've seen a variety of different institutions uh, begin to examine their practices, whether it's hiring, whether it's promotions, whether it's their vendor relationship, their supplier work, uh, their procurement of goods and services and professional services. Uh, we've seen uh, in the political space and domain, we begin to see some conversations, some examinations around uh, the ways in which all of our institutions of authority uh, conduct themselves and making sure it's done in a way that's not only non-racist, but in a way that's actively anti-racist. What I would like to see in criminal punishment is we also need to reimagine the ways in which our criminal punishment system deals with non-violent offenses. We, the police are called to deal with too much. Uh, the police should largely be restricted to violent situations. If it's a non-violent uh, situation, we should have unarmed civil officials who can deal with non-violent situations. Mr. Floyd uh, was accused of passing a counterfeit bill. There's ways he can be charged civilly. There's ways he can be charged criminally that don't require an armed officer to be involved. We've seen in a bunch of other instances in, in ordinary traffic violations, we've seen black people and other people of color murdered after what should be ordinary interactions with police. We don't need armed police officers enforcing these kind of basic uh, you know, and what we'll call anodyne, you know, uh, nonviolent offenses. So in the criminal punishment uh, space, uh, this is the area where we need to reimagine policing, reimagine prosecution. Policing and prosecution should be, re should be um, relegated and prioritized for violent offenses or very, very serious property offenses. And we can use other remedies, other approaches to deal with other types uh, of harms. So I do think the bottom line is what has been positive, Selena, in this moment is that Americans of all shapes, of all colors, of all religions have begun to say, we got to be better than this. This can't be what this country is. A lot of folks fooled themselves for a long period of time to think this country was more racially equitable than it really is. And I think the George Floyd situation has really put a mirror up to what this country is in too many instances. Well, well said. 
You got a lot out in that last sound by Shavar. We appreciate that. We appreciate your time here. Uh, we here at Be Her Talk will continue to follow the Derek Chauvin murder trial. Obviously, we are praying, fighting, and rallying for justice. Thank you, Shavar. Thank you. So we are actually going to close things out with a new segment here on Be Her Talk with Selena Hill. It is titled Rest in Power. And this week on Rest in Power, we are sending you know, our condolences to the family of Midwin Charles, who was a Black defense attorney, legal analyst for MSNBC and CNN, and the founder of, law, of the law firm Midwin Charles and Associates LLC. C. She passed away, sadly, on Tuesday at the age of 47. We are also sending condolences to the family of Florida rep Elsie Hastings, who died on April 6th at the age of 84 after being diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Now, the Democratic congressman, who was Florida's first black federal judge, fought for civil rights. He was first elected to the House in 1992. And lastly, we are ending this show by once again paying tribute to hip-hop icon DMX, who spoke to GQ about his music in 2019, saying, and I quote, if the mainstream accepts it, okay. I'm not going to make it for the mainstream. I'd rather make music for people that I come in contact with, people that I can count on. That's what I make music for, people in the hood. Now, DMX dedicated his life to making music that expressed the pain, joy, trauma, and beauty of the hood. With sincerity and intensity, he reflected and amplified the voices that have been silenced for generations of neglect. As a result, his lyrics made us feel seen and it made us feel heard. DMX was beautifully complex and tragically troubled just like the ghettos, communities, and streets that he uplifted in his music. He also turned his personal battles with alcohol and substance abuse into his music and talked about grappling with addiction, self-medication, anger, and grief. And by doing all of that, he showcased Black male vulnerability in a way that was so profound and changed the way the world views black men. Ultimately, I think his legacy speaks to the fact that he was courageous enough to pour his heart and trauma into his music and reshape hip hop and the sound. On that note, we're going to end with one of his most profound videos, um, Slippin', where he basically uh, showcased his own overdose in a very graphic and profound video. Again, it speaks to his vulnerability. It speaks to his courage. Uh, and, and it speaks to a lot of us because I think that many times when we think of those in the hood who are addicted on drugs, we relegate them as crackheads and a bum and a homeless person. And we don't think like, no, this person could be extremely talented. This person could be extremely gifted. This person could be a philanthropist. This person could be DMX. And that's what he showed that people are multifaceted and we can't, we can't cast away certain segments of society because we don't know who they really are just because they have internal demons. So we're going to go to slipping and then we're going to say goodbye, but we will be here next week. God willing. Much respect to all my Come on. Come on. Can't 
strong. Kept it from doing wrong. Who they is, and this is your song.